in, in cultures of innovation, you can't be overly prescriptive on saying, this is exactly how it's gonna be and, and very top-down driven. You have to allow um, you know, small teams of brilliant people to come together and you try and move as much of the bureaucracy and things out of the way as possible and let them operate. That's Layla Sturdy, founding partner of Capital G, Google's private investment arm. Over the years, she's had a front row seat to how innovation works and knows a winning idea when she sees one. Layla has invested in many of the hottest companies in the last decade, including Stripe, UiPath, Cloudflare, Gusto, Glassdoor, Credit Karma, and more, collectively approaching $100 billion in market value. Today, she's going to sit down with me to demystify the traits she sees in the most successful founders as well as what you can do to foster an environment where your team feels comfortable taking risks that drive results. This is Daniel Sachs, co-CEO of AppDirect, and it's time to decode innovation culture. Welcome to Decoding Digital, a podcast for innovators looking to thrive in the digital economy. I'm your host, Daniel Sachs, and I'll sit down with other founders, CEOs, and changemakers to decode the trends that are transforming the way we work. Let's decode. Layla, so excited to having you on the podcast today and always fun to chat. Dan, thanks for having me. Really excited to be here. So let's start at the beginning. You went to school for biochem, but then you switched to study multimedia, then business. Okay, what's what spurred you to follow all these different paths? So I grew up in Florida, in South Florida. I was actually born in Jamaica and then uh, grew up in, in South Florida and really liked math and science as a kid. So I... Um, had some great math and science teachers and was always sort of encouraged in that direction. And so when I got to college, I, I continued to, to sort of follow that path um, and got a, a, a research job in a genetics laboratory um, and was super involved in science. But as I was moving towards graduation, I sort of realized that um, the academic life or, or more um, science research wasn't really what fired me up. I started to study more economics, more philosophy. Um, I was very interested in international relations and living in different countries. So I decided to um, to move to Ireland and do a, a postdoc. And I had uh, not done much in the way of computer science when I was as an undergrad, but I was really interested in technology. So I did a master's degree in the Department of Computer Science at Trinity College in multimedia. And I was interested at that time, this was back in the early 2000s, there was a, you know, innovation in the web and thinking about different applications. Mobile was just beginning to come online in a major way. So I thought that was a way to, to begin to learn some more computer science skills and begin to think about applications and business models. And that's kind of where I first fell in love with tech and saw myself um, being really a part of the the internet and the software revolution. So I would say my path has never been kind of well scripted from 
<laughs> from the uh, top down has been much more about being excited about learning different uh, different areas and kind of following my heart along the way and making uh, making decisions that when you look back linearly don't don't always make a lot of sense to other people. But here we are. <laughs> and, and let's touch on that following your heart, but really being passionate about the internet revolution. What brought you to the Valley and why Google? Starting at, at Trinity as I spent a lot more time in, in computer science and technology. That was, you know, around the time of some of the first internet wave and crash. And I got really interested in those business models and those opportunities. And I remember actually met Larry and Sergey. I should have uh, just got in their car and, and demanded a job or begged for a job on the way home because it was in like, you know, 99 or something. Um, and just was really interested in, in what was going on. So I decided I was living in, uh, spending time in, in Ireland and in Kenya, working at various sort of educational nonprofits and working on the issues around actually the digital divide and how you bring technology to under-resourced communities. And I decided that I wanted to go to business school and try and get a job in technology. I knew that Silicon Valley, I you know, grew up on the East Coast, but I was excited about Silicon Valley and heard about it. And I also played college basketball and we played Stanford <laughs> And when I was a, uh, a junior. And I went to that campus, I was like, oh my goodness, this is so nice. So the weather in California also had a, a, a and the gym at Stanford also had a bit of a pull, but I decided to, you know, to go out West and went to business school. And that, that got me down the path of, I actually decided to join Bain for a couple of years after business school, but my heart was still in tech. And after sort of two years at Bain, I, I joined Google and it's been a, it's been an awesome ride since being, you know, affiliated with the Google and the alphabet related divisions. What was that moment like in 1999 when you see these two guys, Larry and Sergey? You know, of course, no one knew it was going to be that big, but I loved the product like everybody else. <laughs> so I was using Google obsessively. And so I, they just, they had that appeal of like, oh my gosh, those are those little celebrities for the, the product that you love. So they were, they're interesting. They were interesting people. I mean, they won't remember me at all from that date. I've had many meetings with them since, but you know, they were just interesting people who are curious, which I think is the, uh, a lot of a commonality I've seen across some of the great innovators in technology is that curiosity, that that belief that something can really be 10 or 100 or 1,000x better and sort of commitment to that vision over time. So saw it in that first cocktail party conversation and I've you know, seen it many times since. Let's touch on that because you just articulated one of the key themes that we believe you know, here at Decoding Digital, which is this idea of a persona of a digital hero, someone who has the vision, the tenacity, the energy to be able to innovate and transform themselves to transform their businesses and, and beyond that, the greater environment. So tell me about how you assess your portfolio companies, your founders, and how do you think about this concept of the digital hero? Yeah, I love that. I love that concept. So yeah, the way I would relate to it is is one of the things I really look for in entrepreneurs that, that we back at Capital G is what I call just this conviction in a vision, you know, which is they they can see the future and see why um, they really believe that their product or platform or story is going to solve sort of a really big problem. And 
they're excited to, to solve it. I mean, one of the, I led our investment in Stripe as an example, and Patrick Collison is probably the one of the best examples of that. You just, you, you saw in him the, the belief that he was gonna solve an individual, you know, payments challenge. By the time he really started building Stripe, he saw so much of a bigger opportunity, which is how can you be the commerce infrastructure for the internet? And, you know, could see way before so many other people that so much of the world was going to be in payments and um, and relational transactions were going to happen through the internet. So that this infrastructure component um, was much bigger than just payments and had so much more um, potential to really the transform the way that businesses and people connect. I saw you know a letter investment in a company called UiPath, which is an automation company. And I remember first meeting Daniel, and it was just so passionate about. Tech, the role that technology could play in really helping uh, individuals have mundane sort of tasks taken care of because it's so many of us inside of enterprises are busy like reconciling data or seeing if this system connects to this system and saw the potential for for a, a better architected technical infrastructure to kind of unleash human creativity. And when you have these conversations with entrepreneurs, like I, I notice it myself when I'm feeling excited. I'm like, yeah. That is the future. You know, you can feel the vision uh, in the room and the energy in the room. And I think that matters so much, that conviction, painting the, the power of the solution that you're selling or building to solve like a really important problem. And that vision, I think, is what is an incredible ingredient in driving great leadership, because ultimately what people have to do to build great companies or if you're a digital hero inside of an organization, you have to get a bunch of cross-functional people to do work, to align on a plan, to maybe change what they would have done. And all of that comes down to leadership. And I think one of the most compelling parts of that is painting a vision for, for why this matters and getting people to follow you. And that I think is, uh, it, it shows up in all different ways when an entrepreneur can communicate that vision to me as someone who would potentially invest in their company. I know that they're also going to be able to communicate that to the 10 critical hires they have to make next month and get them to, to choose jumping on this ship versus another one. So I, I love um, sort of vision and conviction as, as um, you know, being a, just an important driving force in, in innovation and transformation. Let's decode that for a little bit. So you talk about the culture of innovation and being able to assess being in a room with the founders of Google, the founder of Stripe, you know, the founder of UiPath. What's different about them from other companies that you may choose not to invest in or that may not materialize like they did? And, and what's that secret sauce? Yeah. So like everything, I never think there's an exact, um, you know, silver bullet because there's so many different ways you can drive great innovation. But if we start with that big thing, to have a truly transformational company, you need a, a massive vision solving a large problem. And then I think there's there's different ways that I've seen great companies continue to feed that innovation energy. So the first is they have this vision so they can attract great people. One of the things that I think Google did so well is I think Larry and Sergey really had a belief that, that small teams could do great things. 
and gave teams a lot of autonomy early on and, and it's continued throughout Google's history. And I think it meant at times that things didn't always make sense. Like we had big bets on Android at the same time as Chrome and different things that you could say, hey, like that's maybe betting on different versions of the future or things that are potentially contradictory to one another. In, in cultures of innovation, you can't be overly prescriptive on saying this is exactly how it's going to be and, and very top down driven. You have to allow, um, you know, small teams of brilliant people to come together and you try and move as much of the bureaucracy and things out of the way as possible and let them operate. Kind of the sort of thousand flowers bloom type of uh, um, of approach to innovation. So I see, I've seen that work really well. Another company that I'm on the board of and invested in an amazing company, Duolingo, which is many of you might be learning French or Spanish or something on, on, on Duolingo, but uh, Luis Van On, who's the CEO and founder there, he's an amazing product visionary and innovator. And I think what I've admired and learned from him is his approach to innovation is he has a very open mind and he has encouraged that among his executive team and his leaders. And then they've built an amazing engineering infrastructure of being able to run tons of A-B tests on um, different product features. So they've built out just this operation that can um, be open-minded to what users may want or what may add value or what may drive retention or, or, or different metrics. And they're able to just test tons of those and drive that through the innovation engine. Because I think a lot of what I've seen in innovation is like an open-minded approach and then an ability to rapid experimentation is actually critical versus knowing the right answer up front. Because if you can run more experience, a lot of people describe this as fail fast. I describe it as like rapid experimentation. Like if you can run 100 A-B tests versus your competitor that can only run two, uh, there's a much better chance that that you are, you're going to come out on top. So those are a couple of models. I think there's no silver bullet for one model for innovative cultures, but I've seen lots of great companies uh, be able to to build them in their own unique way that works for the business. So you gave examples of founders who built the future that they wanted to see, had conviction in this vision, and put in mechanisms in order to support innovation and provide autonomy in the examples you gave or, or rapidly test. Take a large business that's been around for 50, 100 years, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of employees. What advice do you give to a team member there to try to drive a culture of innovation where maybe their organization isn't built with the same mechanics to optimize for the risk? Yeah, I, this is a very good question. I think it's um, it's hard because I do see some of our most innovative uh, companies sell into these large organizations and Google sells into these very large organizations uh, where for different reasons, there's, I, I think it tends to be true, there are exceptions, but over time as organizations get older and more entrenched and growth rates are slower, the, the organization becomes more solidified and overall there's just a high risk aversion. And there's a lot of times you get into to more politics and in sort of innovators dilemma. So I just say that to sort of uh, recognize the challenge, you know, to me, one of the most interesting things about COVID, um, uh, you know, it's a very sad and hard time for, for so many people and for the world. And of course, there are a few examples where technology companies, th this has actually been a big accelerant to opportunities for them because it's provided constraints in other areas. So I 
I see COVID being one example, and and there are others of uh, accelerants towards digital transformation, where finally, for external reasons, companies are being are feeling desperate enough. I mean, for certain that they're adopting technologies that there were previously, you know, too many big obstacles because of politics and the, that the organization didn't want to change. So I'd say the you know the advice for the leaders inside of these organizations is similar to what I've talked about. I mean, I think it's painting a painting a vision for what this can be, a big picture vision, but then being okay to have smaller wins. So some of the places that I've seen most success is in adopting technologies where there's quick time to value and there's clear ROI and using those quantitative wins to begin to sort of gain momentum and gain and, and gain sort of credibility in the organization so that over time you can help help you know no one can refute when those quick wins uh, um, deliver business value and that helps those leaders gain even more credibility and sort of rope internally to then make bigger bets that could take you know, a longer time to really transform. So that's sort of one idea I've seen some leaders really uh, be able to gain momentum by the, the the sort of quick win approach. The other one is that it really, you have to find a way inside of organizations to get kind of board level and C-level buy-in that digital transformation is needed. And there you need sort of much more direct, you know, sort of direct communication and path to uh, to making sure you're not pushing a boulder up a hill. And depending on what level you are in the organization, I think you may or may not have the the the, the you know personal capital to be able to do that. But that's more of the top-down approach. Got it. You talked about the digital divide and you talked about it in context to you know being in Ireland many years ago. How would you define the digital divide? What's the current state of it and, and where do you think it's going? Yeah. So, I mean, this is uh, can be defined in lots of different ways. When I was working on this um, back in Ireland in the, um, you know, early 2000s, it, we were defining it as, you know, ac- basically basic Internet access, which in lots of parts of the country then was not a reality. Very sad to say that now as we're in 2020 in the United States, dealing with the immense challenges that that the coronavirus has created um, and one of the implications being a lot of school systems not being open, I think it's kind of heartbreaking to all of us to see how how much how alive and well the digital divide is in this country in terms of, of access to devices and internet connection for certain communities and certain kids that are you know in a situation where they need to access school at home and they don't have the the technical infrastructure to do so. So I think it's actually never been more apparent how much we still need to do to ensure equity and access for for all groups of people, not just those with with more means. And um, I think the urgency around that is all the more evident in a time like this. I mean, what could be more important than school for school age kids? Um, but I think there are even even when hopefully soon. Um, when it happens, we can all go back to, the kids can go back to in-person school. There's lots of other implications of differential access to technology and technical skills that I think will be a great driver of uh, hopefully more equity, but could be a great cause of, of greater inequity in the future. And that's why I think things like investing in um, the technical skills gap 
for industries and groups of people where work is changing is incredibly important. So it's not just about internet access, but it may be about digital skills that are needed to find meaningful employment in jobs in the future. And for kids, I think it's about not just access, but about you know digital citizenship and digital skills that um, will enable them to make good decisions in a world where um, our connectedness has a lot of advantages, but also poses a lot of risks. I think there are so many ways that the digital divide still exists in the US and elsewhere. And you can tackle it at the infrastructure layer, the sort of access layer, and uh, the skills layer, and then kind of everywhere in between. Uh, but there's still a lot of work to be done. Yeah, and that's our vision at AppDirect is to make business technology accessible globally. And, you know, very stems from that vision, which is how can we enable businesses around the world to have access to the tools, really SaaS and cloud and other recurring services that will enable them to thrive. And what one example that I, I, I love to talk about, and this probably applies to a lot of elements of the digital divide, is when something is so difficult to adopt that there's cost barriers or education barriers or fragmentation barriers, it's it's really challenging. And when you think about you know universal healthcare as a concept in many countries, you know it's a right. And I I see access to technology, particularly business technology or, or personal productivity, in some ways should become a universal right because that really gives people an equal playing field to compete. Yeah, no, it's a super interesting way of looking at it. Well, first of all, just on the ease of use point, I'm with you on I have a, a passion for ease of use and great design and great, uh, you know, sort of product, um, product design being sort of fundamental to building a great product, because for the for, for the majority of people in the world, they don't spend their days like many of us sort of in, you know, immersed in the latest technical trends and really thinking through the power of software and what can be done. They're, they're running other businesses. They're taking care of their families. They're, they're working in lots of different industries that over time are going to be increasingly tech enabled and already are. So uh, ease of use and building products that really can integrate into the lives of people and into their, their existing workflow, I think is just a huge opportunity and needs to be a sort of a huge focus. I mean, when I was on the operating side of Google, a lot of the products that I helped build were like really trying to solve this problem, like pro products like AdWords Express, which were like a simple product for, um, for SMBs to be able to, to access the AdWords ecosystem, AdWords product, which was way too complex and built for really larger advertisers. So that is an area, you know, I, I think I'm, I'm really passionate about. And I think I agree with you that if we don't find a way to solve collectively ease of use and to have a lot of the different parts of software more integrated so it's not, you know, that an individual who's like running a non-technical business, a retail store or in agriculture or something needs to, to work on 15 different software um, platforms to run his or her business, that will never work. So, but at the same time, if they're not able to access some of that software, there will be um, inequities. So the concept of bringing software to everyone and sort of empowering small businesses and empowering um, populations globally to have access to the same technology, I think is a, a really noble vision. And it's important because, I mean, I, I'm passionate about issues of like 
growing inequality and stuff. And we really need to find ways to um, to reverse those trends. And this is this is one way to do it, because on the bright side, there has I mean, never like the software that is available, like building a company and building an application with a type of cloud infrastructure that's available, application platforms that are available, like it's never been better. I mean, it's so exciting. So the potential and the building blocks for infrastructure are there. Uh, we just got to make sure everyone has access and that we make these products easy enough to use so that they're that a greater a greater group of people can access them. Okay, I want to ask you to put on Professor Layla hat. Give a three minute lecture on ease of use and how you as an individual can build products capability that are easy to use. One of the great trends in computing right now is the increasing prominence of sort of vis visual application development platforms to um, to basically abstract the complexity that that building code used to require. So I think, you know, if we look even 10, 20 years ago, like you had to code so much more to um, to to be able to get software to either build the software yourself or to get software to do um, things you needed it to do. So I think one of the great drivers of, of increased ease of use is that we're seeing platforms that have abstracted some of that complexity to a visual application development platform where people can use more intuition and kind of business logic to, to design applications for what they need to get done. Um, and that is a concept. So, you know, I'll give you an example is a company called Webflow, which I think, um, you know, a lot of the ways if we look at just web design as a category, a lot of the there were some more of the more simple web design platforms like a Wix or something that were super innovative and helped S and continue to help SMBs create simple websites. But then if you wanted to do more complex stuff, you still had to code in, in WordPress or you needed quite a lot of technical skill. And Webflow is a platform where you can now, through a visual interface, pull lots of different component parts to to execute the sort of end result of, a, of the website that you want to build in a much simpler way. And I'm seeing this type of trend across a bunch of different categories. Like people call it no code or low code. And I think the, the idea of it is just abstracting complexity and designing software in a more modular way that allows citizens to become developers in a sense, in a way that um, they couldn't in the past. So that's one example. I think that, you know, th that's a very simple example of, of sort of a, a trend towards ease of use. And then on the flip side, I would say, you know, ease of use is, uh, um, you can go back to like old school examples, which is like when YouTube was created, uh, there were a bunch of, of video platforms that did the exact same thing. But this, the actual upload, video upload feature on YouTube was super easy and it was just faster and that that works, you know, it just works better. So you can look, that was just one example that came to mind, but I think we can all look at tons of um, the companies that we know that have like really great design and really great um, uh, self-service features that drive adoption in a way that the clunky um, interfaces just don't. What's behind the secret like that you might know about for a leader or an organization to create those simple products that are going to ultimately outperform versus the complex products that are going to eventually be 
commoditized by uh, somewhere else. Like everything, I wish there was a secret sauce because if I had it, I'd find it and you know try to <laughs> replicate it everywhere. I mean, I think that what I have found in a lot of those great companies is that just um, it's either the founder or um, an early employee, early team member who had sort of amazing design sense, honestly, and then building that into the ethos of the company very early on. What I have almost never seen is the sort of turning around of trends in, um, you know, if you're some like clunky software um, provider, you don't turn into Apple the next day. Like it's just really, really hard. So I would say that it, it is a lot about design talent. And the good news is like design talent, I, th I think access to the design, great design can come from lots of different places. You don't have to have the title designer. And I think collaboration software like Figma and stuff are bringing engineers and product managers and product marketing managers into the mix to sort of have a more collaborative approach to, to design. But ultimately it's still, it is done by talent. Um, but then I think really paying attention to the right metrics for if you're a CEO or you're the leader of the project to sort of uh, um, compare, right? On like, I remember when we were building uh, AdWords Express, it's just like simple things. It's like, try these different signup flows. What percent of people get through your signup flow? Like something very basic. But when you look at Stripe Checkout, a product that they have, the number of, if you have Stripe Checkout enabled on your website, like, the throughput of that compared to a clunky checkout flow, just compare those numbers and uh, you'll see that the driver is often great product design, but bringing attention to the gap in experience is only done through data. So like when we invest in companies and on the companies that are on the board, you know, we pay really close attention to things like the conversion rate and time in product and different usage metrics that tell you that get at this sort of ease of use point. Um, and the more that you can benchmark it, like when you, whatever industry you're operating in, try and think of the very best experience there and try to find out what that metric is to kind of really understand what excellence is and then see how far off you are so that you're not kind of arguing with somebody over pixels. You're sort of saying, hey, I know at this checkout conversion uh, flow, you know, what I know is excellent is 3x what, what, what I'm achieving with my current flow. What can I do to change that? You know, because a lot of times um, it goes back to that. It isn't like great design, like most things come, you know, in a package in a, a silver bullet. It's A-B tests, it's gradual, it's sort of, you know, very, thinking through design principles that can flow throughout the organization. So it's, it's hard to execute. Um, so measurement and, and having uh, North Star goals becomes really important. So you talked about low-code, no-code, developer tools, design elements. All these things are going to make it easier to build products. But today, there's such a scarcity of engineers and designing resources. If you fast forward 10 years, do you think having a computer science degree matters? Will there be engineers? I, I have thought quite a lot about this. And I um, so I believe it's a yes and. So I think um, there is an incredible demand for technical resources. And I think computers and computing um, just continue to be more and more important in all industries and aspects of human life. The whole, you know, software is eating the world sort of uh, trend, I really believe to be very true. Um, so I think there will be 
plenty of demand for computer science. Anyone who's going getting their computer science degree, there will be uh, there will be lots of jobs and there'll be lots of demand for that. Um, but I believe that demand is so great. Like one stat that always sticks in my head is that you know there are 10x the number of knowledge workers as there are sort of technical workers. So um, the the demand for software and custom applications and automations um, and integrations are just so high that we are going to need non-technical workers to be able to implement more technical solutions. So that's sort of, to me, this trend in citizen development, which is the engineers, there'll be plenty of work for engineers and IT specialists, but we're also going to need um, a more of a self-service element for lots of different um, parts of the organization. And that's where the advent of, of no-code and low-code tools are playing a huge role. So they're enabling um, sort of citizen developers to build applications or solve business use cases that historically would have required engineering or IT support and no longer will. So the good news for that is that it means for enterprises, particularly large enterprises that have a great need to invest in digital transformation in order to stay competitive, but have a real dearth of, of IT and engineering resources. Um, and the other trend that's very real is that IT and engineering resources need to be invested in things like cybersecurity and governance and privacy to make sure that the sort of data infrastructure and the security infrastructure is sufficient because the risks of that are so significant in the world that we're living in. Um, so the, there will be plenty of jobs for engineers to work on that long backlog of requests that the more we can get these no-code and low-code platforms in there to enable business users without technical degrees, but with business proficiency. And if you have the software designed in a way that they can use their business logic, they can use their overall um, understanding of processes and the specs that are needed to fulfill a certain, um, certain requirements, and they can build it themselves inside these platforms. So I'm super sure. excited about this trend. It sounds like that could be a massive source of job creation in the future. When we think about the future of work and retooling, like you could imagine millions uh, or tens of millions of jobs being created there, right? And there's lots of different ways that I think the jobs can be created. There's the everyone being sort of proficient on these development platforms and just being able to do their jobs, um, it, you know, better and better. And then there's the the segment slightly above, which I'd almost call like the I don't know the perfect the somewhere between a full developer and just a knowledge worker. Um, someone like if you, if you think about people that are experts in in sort of Salesforce implementation or some of these big software. Um, platforms, I think there will be people that some of those, these no-code and low-code platforms that gain a lot of share, you'll start to see people, if you if you become learn how to be an expert website builder on Webflow, um, we're invested in a company called Uncork, which is an application development platform that solves um, lots of enterprise use cases and financial services, insurance, public sector. So for example, they built the, their software was used, it's a no-code platform, and it was used to, um, to build software for marriage licenses in New York City. And then it was used to build software for onboarding of insurance customers inside a large insurance company. So it's just an incredibly well-designed platform that has a flexible data model and lots of different modules that you can uh, bring together to build applications for a ton of use cases. 
So you can imagine a world where new field of, uh, of workers is trained to like use the Uncork platform in lots of different and sophisticated ways. And because of the broad use of those applications, you know, digital onboarding for insurance companies to, to marriage license software, you can imagine they can help bring lots of those use cases into to different areas. And that will be great for um, for job creation and for skill building in the in the new world. So I think we're going to see a lot of um, a lot of innovation in this area, and that's one of the reasons you know going back to our digital divide point, why I'm also passionate about the opportunities for for everybody to develop these technical skills, and they don't have to be hardcore coding skills. They can be uh, proficiency in the software platforms that are going to drive a lot of the future of work. Let's talk about the flip side of that. Obviously, you have uh, some insights in the robotics automation area. Are robots going to take over our jobs and, and the world? I mean, I don't think so. I look at, um, you know, our world has increasing complexity. So take a company like UiPath. And if you look inside a large enterprise, there are literally thousands of applications that, uh, that you know, enterprise customers use. And these these applications are not integrated with each other. They don't talk with each other. So the sort of um, mundane work that a knowledge worker has to do to just get data out of one system, to uh, you know have it like clean it up and speak with another system, it's it, like that kind of work has increased as the sort of applications have proliferated in all of these different sort of functions within an organization. So I think a lot of the great automation that companies like UiPath are doing is just connecting some of those workflows, um, doing the very basic stuff, and then it will enable the humans are still the 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 part of the puzzle that does the critical thinking and and um, you know if you're a a salesperson and you have UiPath you know working in the background taking customer data from from one platform getting information for another triggering you when you need to take a certain action you're the one with the the brain the critical thinking the ideas to make things happen I think that some of this software can just help. You make more, be more efficient in the background to unlock sort of real creativity and have you spend time on the right things. So, so let's touch on that. You know, you talk about the the brain, and you you've talked about leadership. One of the things that I've found on my entrepreneurial journey is that transforming yourself, the way you think, the way you lead, um, is the only way to transform your business and get others to to follow and be passionate about that vision. I think to be a great leader, you have to have a, a amazing self-awareness and you have to really invest in um, building that self-awareness because I don't think it's really anything that necessarily comes that naturally to, to any of us. But those that that take the time, that are open enough in their own kind of heart or mind or whatever it is to say, I'm willing to look at myself and take hard feedback and pay attention to to kind of what's going on around me and begin to ask myself some of the harder questions on what are some of the patterns that are serving me what are some of the patterns that are not serving me what what am i strong at what am i you know less good at the reality that um as your company and your organization that you're leading as it keeps growing and becoming even more and more impactful like every day um, the expectations for what you need to bring as a leader just get higher and higher. So I find that the ones that are able to be most self-aware are able to 
both understand who are the teammates that they need to recruit to complement their um, areas that they're not as strong. Um, and, and that means both technical, oh, maybe I need a really strong go-to-market leader if I'm a product visionary, but it's also, you know, oh, maybe if I'm a person who um, isn't great at giving hard feedback, and even though we all say, oh, give hard feedback, like not everybody, you, you also have to a certain part, maybe that's hard for me. Maybe I'm very good at being um, inspirational and, and cheering people along, and but I'm not as good at, at the hard feedback, or maybe I'm incredibly creative and I can lean into risk and I have good strategic intuition, but I can't like be on time for a meeting, like, you know, from the life of me and I have don't have operational discipline, like kind of noting those things and saying, how do I complement that on my team um, is, is so critical to sort of building the the very best organizations and having them the most the most impact and i think that um you know great people who are going to get on board and be on your team if they see a leader who is exceptional themselves um, on these certain things but is also self-aware of where they need help and is willing to be vulnerable about like hey maybe i'm not as good at this or i'm not as good as that like that's just very attractive. Those are the kind of people you want to work with. So that's what I've seen, you know, over time, like a lot of the, the secret sauce, if there is any, is like the very best companies and the very best leaders, like exceptional people want to follow them. Exceptional people want to be part of their team. And I see that being driven through, through their own, you know, unique talents, but then a self-awareness and an appreciation of willing to be vulnerable and a willing to like um, lock arm in arm with other people to like achieve even greater things. What does vulnerability mean in that context? In, the, in a lot of times in the business context, I think it means being authentic, like showing up with, with what's really going on for you, being willing to to admit mistakes and admit things that you that you don't know and things that you didn't do right, and then willing to kind of do the work to to sort of dig in more on yourself and dig in more on the dynamics that you bring to relationships. I think it's important for all of us to keep in mind, which is like, you know, everybody has something else. You don't know what's going on in their own lives. So you don't know, you know, the notion of be kind, you don't know what people are going through. And also the notion of like, never put anyone on a pedestal or look down on somebody because um, we all have different power dynamics and different relationships and we all are just people. And I always, try to think about any advice I could give or, or, or help as a board member, always try to take it into, in, in the context of who are they as people and, and, um, and what are they going through? So, uh, you know, that, that equation, right? Happiness is expectations minus reality, right? So it's like, just because people are achieving amazing things, if the expectations for themselves or the companies are so high, it doesn't always mean that they're living on cloud nine. But I think the people that have great perspective and they really believe in what they're building and they are willing to be authentic and real as leaders and they create great teams, then they, you know, they can be a small company doing the right thing in their community or they can be the largest software company in the world. And those are the people that are probably gonna be happy and fulfilled. So that's my my view on the world. <laughs> Amazing. And what's the one last piece of advice you would give an innovator uh, in order to achieve their vision? You know, keep learning, right? I think what's so fun about innovation and what ultimately will keep 
you or me or any of us in it for the long haul is that we like a little bit of uncertainty. <laughs> we like feeling a little bit, you know, out of our league, but we're going to keep we're going to keep digging, we're going to keep trying to understand, we're going to keep believing there's a better way to do something and that the path isn't going to be straightened up into the right. It's going to be zigzagged, it's going to be hard. They're going to be the experienced or knowledgeable or certain people that tell us this is never going to work. Um, and so you have to just be driven by the belief that it, in your ultimate vision, that it will work at some point, that you're not going to be perfect, but you love learning and changing along the way, learning about yourself, learning about your organization, learning about these technical trends and these like massively powerful things that are kind of driving a lot of that. And uh, um, if that keeps you motivated, then I think you can have a long career in trying to do innovative things. Well, uh, Professor Layla, uh, the world thanks you for sharing um, all of this. No, it was amazing and really, really appreciate you uh, being on the show. Well, Dan, it's always a pleasure to get to catch up with you and chat. So thank you to you and your team for having me and uh, look forward to uh, catching up again soon. Amazing. Take care. On the next episode of Decoding Digital. I think tremendous opportunities await for connected strategies, but there's a huge trust issue, right, between customers and uh, and companies. I mean, it's one thing if I order, you know, kind of a, a book on, on Amazon, right? Okay, I need a certain amount of trust, you know, that this will happen, but there's something else about sharing my personal health data or, or my, my financial data. Wharton School professor and author of Connected Strategies, Nikolai Sigelkow. Listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your podcast player of choice. To learn more, visit decodingdigital.com. Until next time.